Open your Bibles to the last eight verses of Galatians. At long last, what we started last September, we wrap up today. Now, we believe, I believe, Scripture teaches that all Scripture is useful, that at every time anyone would stand in this pulpit and open God's Word, that He's at work that he's working powerfully through his Holy Spirit, accomplishing his good purposes for his glory and for our good. And I especially believe that that's what he's been doing during our time in Galatians. I I sense that, and from what some of you have told me, you sense that as well, that God has been at work in this letter doing something foundational about who we are as a church. that we would be a church that is gripped by and rooted in this radically free gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This amazing grace that not only saves us but transforms us and not just us in this room this morning but all that the Lord would add to our number in the coming months and years, that we would be a church that's gripped by that radically free gospel of Jesus' amazing grace. Now we come this morning to the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Galatians. So it's a letter again that Paul wrote because that very gospel that he preached when he planted the churches in the region of Galatia, that gospel had been watered down It had been negated, it had been nullified by false teachers who were adding to the gospel, placing conditions on it, saying, you know what, this free grace actually needs to be earned, which immediately changes the definition. It's no longer free grace if you have to earn it. And this angered Paul. He was angry when he wrote this letter. He was angry... Number one, because he loves the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves the gospel of radical, free grace. But also because he loved these Galatians. They were his brothers and his sisters. And they were in a dire situation. The stakes were high. And if you remember, he began this letter unlike any of the rest of his letters that he wrote. Normally, he would write a letter and he would begin, he'd be all, hi, how y'all doing? So thankful for you guys. But do you remember how he started this letter? Chapter 1, verse 6, he begins by saying, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him. So it shouldn't surprise you if he begins the letter in a different way, that he would end the letter a little differently There's no mention of his future travel plans, as is often the case. There's no greetings to other Christians in the area. He's actually going to get in one final appeal that is basically a super short summary of the whole letter. So stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. 
and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you take this, your word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inerrant, infallible, and indeed the authority that we find ourselves under this morning, would you take this word and would you powerfully reveal its truth to our hearts and to our minds? Would you take the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus? And as we conclude this letter, would you sink it deep down into our hearts? Would you help our minds to understand it, perhaps even for the very first time? Would you change our lives by its saving and transforming power? We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever gotten an email or perhaps seen a comment on Facebook and it's in all caps? The whole thing is in all caps, start to finish. Why do people do that? Why do they type in all caps? A couple of possible reasons. It could be that they're unknowingly committing an internet faux pas. Right? They, don't, they don't know that they're yelling. They, they don't know. Or it could be that they've got something really important that they want to say. They've got a point that they're trying to make. And I think it's that second thing that's up here in verse 11. Paul's got a point that he really wants to make. He really wants to emphasize. He's got one last shot. And so he's writing in big letters, right? Not only is he writing it himself, which is a little unusual, right? Because he's got a scribe that's been writing. Every, someone who really knows how to write. Not everybody back then knew as well how to write and to do it proficiently. And he knew that this letter was going to be passed down and read through church. So he wanted it to be right. But he said, all right, final paragraph. This is mine. Hand me the stylus, the papyrus, whatever it was. I'm going to write this down. So it, it lends some authenticity to it. It's in his own handwriting. It's his signature at the end. And it also speaks to how personal this is for Paul. This is not just a theological essay that he's writing. It's a personal appeal. Do you remember um, earlier in Galatians when he mentioned being in the pains of childbirth for these folks? That's how much he loved them and was concerned for their spiritual well-being. And so this is his final effort, one last chance to help his brothers and his sisters out. And he puts before them, in essence, a choice between two Gospels. 
one of which ain't a gospel at all. All right, so chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he's astonished. He can't believe they're deserting him who called them in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, Paul says, not that there is another one. There's no other gospel. And so Paul's been describing these these two gospels, if you will, these two versions of Christianity, showing how one is a fraud. It's a fake. It doesn't even work. And showing how the true gospel that he preached when he was in Galatia is the only true gospel. And one of the ways that these two can be separated, one of the ways that these two can be distinguished from each other is through this question. Is the gospel more about what we do for God or about what God has done for us? And this is either or. You're not allowed to say, oh, well, it's some of both because it's not. It's either one or it's the other. One will leave you with a gospel that is external and is focused on man. The other will leave you with a gospel that is internal. And God focused. And so we'll start, of course, with the first one, the one that the false teachers were promoting. Look at verses 12 and 13. Circumcision, of course, is the big litmus test that the false teachers are putting forward. They're saying, all right, believing in Jesus, that's fine. We're not against that. It's okay to be a Christian. But if you want to be really serious about your faith, If you want to be a Christian who's accepted by God and accepted by us, then you'll follow the Mosaic law. Namely, most importantly, you'll get circumcised. So the the gospel, and I use that term a little loosely here, of the false teachers, is based on man's adherence to the law. It's based on what you do to make yourself acceptable. But right off the bat, Paul is exposing the motivations of these false teachers. They're only pushing you to be circumcised, Paul says, because they don't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, now what is the link there? Why would they be persecuted because of the cross of Christ? Here's why. If your gospel is only about the cross of Christ without any additional requirements, where you just simply place your faith in the perfectly righteous life and the sacrificial death of Christ as our substitute and his rising from the dead on the third day, if that's all you're doing, then when you have a bunch of filthy, pagan, second-class people like the Galatians who were Gentiles and not Jews, when they become Christians, well, they're going to make us filthy if we associate with them. If we, for instance, shared a meal with them, sat at the same table with them. Some of these things ringing a bell from earlier on. Right? If we did that, we would be ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And our Jewish friends, they'd ostracize us. 
They wouldn't have anything to do with us. That's the persecution they wanted to avoid. And they could easily avoid it. They could have their cake and eat it too if those filthy Gentile converts would just follow the law. If they would just become good Jews like us, be ceremonially clean, and be circumcised. So Paul's exposing. He's reminding the Galatians that these guys don't care anything about you or your spiritual well-being. That's not why they're pushing circumcision. They only care about themselves, about them not experiencing persecution. And the other thing that they'd really like to do is to appear successful in the eyes of men. They want to boast, Paul says, in your flesh. As if to suggest uh, the more foreskins they could come up with as trophies, the more converts to Judaism they could come up with, how much more successful they would look in the eyes of their Jewish friends and leaders. But here's the big, huge problem with that. With this external man-focused version of the gospel. Obedience-based religion like this does not work. Paul says, even they who are circumcised, they don't keep the law. They fail on multiple levels, actually. First, they don't keep all the law. Yeah, they keep the one about circumcision. And probably the ones about the right foods to eat and the right clothes to wear. And probably which days on the calendar you need to circle in red and do special things on. But they got to do a lot more than just that. We saw two different places where Paul said, you got to do the whole kit and caboodle. If you're going to base it on obedience, you got to do the whole thing. Galatians 3.10, right? For all who rely on works of the law, number one, you're under a curse, because you've got to abide by all things written and do them. Galatians 5.3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Clearly something that they're not doing. They're not even able to. It's an impossible standard to reach. And when you realize That what God has been expecting all along is not just external obedience, but hearts that are lovingly obedient to him. When you realize, as the Jews should have realized, that even circumcision was internal and not external. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. See, this wasn't ultimately about the flesh at all. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. No, the gospel is not primarily external, nor is it focused on man's obedience to God, but rather, part two, it's internal. And it's focused on the obedience that the God-man, Jesus Christ, performed in our place. Look at verse 15. It is not the external that matters. It is not the external that makes the difference. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. 
but what? A new creation. It's not what you do in your flesh. Your human strength, your ability, they don't count. Only the work done by another on the inside of you counts for anything. A new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so tie those things together with what we've seen in Galatians. How do you become a new creation? How is it that you come to have new life? Well, the old life has to pass away. It has to die. In fact, it has to be crucified. It has to be murdered. Galatians 2.20 Paul's claim I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, the center of that first pretend gospel is the good life that we're trying to live and that we're trying to get out of this arrangement. But the center of the real gospel is death. The death that my sin and rebellion, that your sin and rebellion earned and deserved death that was taken and experienced by another. Taken by an innocent substitute who was willingly subjected to the cruelest, most shameful death imaginable. And y'all, as Christians, we don't get this because we've had a long time to think about the cross as something noble and perhaps as even something beautiful. And for those contemporary to the time that it happened, it was the most repugnant thing possible. You wouldn't even say it in in good company. You'd have to mention it obliquely. He hung on a tree. He was crucified. The long-awaited Messiah and Savior was brutally executed like the lowest of the low like the vilest of offenders. It should have been the biggest embarrassment for Christianity, for Jesus' followers. But instead, it became their biggest boast. Look at verse 14. See, the false teachers were boasting in the numbers of people they had convinced to be circumcised. But Paul says, the only thing that I will boast about is the cross of Christ, my crucified Savior. Now, why in the world would you boast in such a thing? Why would you boast in something that looks like utter defeat, humiliation, shame? Well, you'd boast in it because of what it accomplished for you. You'd boast in it because it accomplished what you could never accomplish for yourself. It absorbed God's wrath. 
the wrath that rightly, justly should have fallen on you and me. He died a death we should have died. He paid the debt that we owed. He suffered the punishment that we deserved. And Paul says, in that, oh boy, do I boast. And, and, and our, our English word for boast doesn't really even do justice, right? Because we, we hear boast and we usually think of that as a negative, right? As, as braggadocious. And if we were boasting in what we thought we were doing for God, then it would be negative. But that's just it. See, the core of the real gospel is boasting in what another has done for us. And as such, our boasting then is is joy-filled reveling and exulting and glorying in what Jesus has done for us. One of the commentators I read this week said, the thing that we boast in, the object of our boasting, it fills our horizons It's all we can see. It engrosses our attention. It absorbs our time and energy. It becomes the only thing that we live for. Right? And and that's what Paul is is getting at here in, in 14. I don't want to not mention this when he's talking about being crucified to the world and the world to him. Right? When our boast is in what Jesus has done for us, We no longer live for what the world lives for. Being made a new creation means I've got new desires. And I've also got new distastes for things. Things that I used to love and pursue. No thank you. And things that I never gave the time of day to. Oh man, that's, that's what I long for now. His, his, his word, his, his people. Right? Properly understood. The gospel, the cross of Christ, should be either the absolute greatest, most wonderful thing in your life, or it should be despised and repugnant to you. If you really get it, if you really understand it, there's no room for anything in the middle. The cross of Christ can't just be okay to you. It can't be something that you, that you hear about or read about and you say, oh, well, that's nice. No, properly understood the cross of Christ either satisfies you and completes you and makes you feel absolutely and totally alive or it deeply offends you. It insults you like a slap across the face because it's insulting to be told that you're too weak, you're too shot through with sin to be capable of contributing anything to your salvation. It's offensive to insist that you're so bad off, the Son of God had to die to make your salvation possible. It's ridiculous to say 
that good, moral, upstanding people need the cross of Christ just as much as the bad folks do. It's lumping in the citizens of the year with the prostitutes and the drug dealers. The gospel's offensive because it's intolerant. It says the only way to be saved is through this cross of Christ. And so when many do find it offensive and revolting and despicable, they lash out. They take action against those who believe like that. The cross will lead to suffering. It definitely did for Paul. Verse 17. He had been stoned and whipped and beaten and imprisoned, left for dead. The the false teachers were obsessed about a particular mark in the flesh that legitimized their belonging to God's people, that made them children of Abraham. Paul offers different marks in the flesh as his evidence. I want to finish with verse 16. Here's the final thing that sets the internal God-centered gospel apart from the phony gospel. At the end of his letters, Paul very often offers grace to his readers. Grace to you from the Lord Jesus. Sometimes it's grace with the addition of of love or, or of peace. Galatians is a little different in that he offers peace and mercy. This is the only time that mercy is offered at the end of one of his letters. But that's not the big thing. The big thing is that What he's offering is conditional. And that doesn't happen in his other letters. It's conditional, right? This peace and mercy, well, it's only for the rule followers. What? Like if you've been paying any attention at all at any point during Galatians, that Paul offers peace and mercy to the rule followers... What is up with that? What rule is Paul insisting that they, it says, walk by? And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. What rule is he talking about? The rule that the real gospel is not about the externals. It's not about our performance or about our obedience. Remember verse 15, those things don't count. The only thing that counts is if we've been made a new creation. Now, yes, some of you get nervous. You get a little anxious. What about the obedience? Right? It comes. It comes. For all who have been made a new creation, the externals will follow. Our desires will be changed. Even our behavior will be transformed. Just don't try to put the cart in front of the horse. The externals, the changes in our behavior, 
are always effect and never cause as far as God's concerned. So keep that in mind. Right, so those who walk by the rule of the internal, God-centered gospel of what he has done for us, not what we do for him, those rule followers are truly God's people. They're truly the Israel of God. A little bit of an awkward phrase there at the end of verse 16. Right? But that was the big question. That was the big question. Who are truly God's people? Who truly belongs? And what do you have to do to belong? And so those false teachers got it wrong, and Paul's trying to correct. But y'all, that's very much the question today as well. Who belongs to God's people? Who belongs? What does that mean? But the problem, today as it was then, is that far too often folks who claim to want to belong to the people of God do so for the absolute wrong motivations. Very much like that of the false teachers. Their motivations are to avoid suffering. Well, I don't want to go to hell. And they want success in life. I need the Lord to bless me my family, my employment, my whatever. And those motivations will lead to a tragic end for many. The the words of Jesus in Matthew 7 just ring in my head so often when I think about this. So many people at the end, Jesus said, are going to come to me and say, look what I did. Look what I performed. Look at my obedience. Look at my good deeds. Look at my generosity. And what will Jesus' response be? To many, not a few it says, but to many. I don't know who you are. I don't know you. Depart. But to those who've had their eyes opened, to their desperate need, to their lack of ability to contribute anything other than to cry out to their Savior. Those not only find that peace and that mercy that Paul is talking about, but when they do, it becomes their boast. It's the only thing that matters to them. The only source of their joyful, exalting, life-consuming glory is that you this morning. Is your seeking to follow the gospel as you understand it a means to avoid some kind of suffering or to, to gain some kind of blessing? Or is it something that has come to consume you? It fills your horizons. It floods your heart with joy like nothing else in the world. Is that you this morning? Have you come to the end of yourself of thinking that you've got something 
to offer to God or something to impress Him with? Are you ready to receive and rest upon Jesus alone and what He has done for you alone, not what you think you can do for Him? My prayer this morning is that you can truly say that your boast is in the cross of Christ. By the gracious working of His Spirit, may that be the case. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this letter. Thank You for this Gospel. It is radical. It's free. It's Your grace. It's about You. It's about what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Not about what we've got to offer to Him. It's easily misunderstood. It's easily replaced with moralism, with do-goodism, with trying hard to be a good person. Oh God, by the power of Your Spirit, would You set fire to those things and burn them away so that only the free offer of Jesus' gracious Gospel would remain. And that Your Spirit would open eyes and unstop ears, would replace hearts of stone this morning with hearts of flesh that would be ready to embrace Jesus as He's freely offered in the Gospel. We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Would you stand?